the um, Four Noble Truths of what we are concerned with at this moment. And I told you that there were ten virtues to be perfected. And we have already discussed some of those virtues. Now, truth is also one of the virtues. And it's an important aspect because we're talking about four noble truths and truth as an aspect of virtue. Now, truth is not just an aspect of virtue. It's an aspect of that virtue, but also of concentration and wisdom. So all three parts of the Noble Eightfold Path are embedded in truth, or truth is embedded in all three parts. And I have particularly paid attention at this time to the virtue part of the Noble Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, right livelihood. But we will see that truth belongs to the other two parts too. So obviously truth is on a first on a level of speaking truth. That's obvious, isn't it? So that's right speech. Right speech is not only a virtue, but it is indispensable. Indispensable for any kind of mode of life that has some aspect of goodness in it. Right speech is not only not lying or speaking the truth, it also concerns not backbiting, not being aggressive, not harsh speech, not kind of speech that has negativity in it. Because not only are we then having negativity in our own mind and hurting ourselves, no, we're also trying to hurt others. And usually do, because most people haven't practiced long enough to separate themselves and their emotions from the triggers that happen outside of them. If one has practiced long enough, one doesn't have to respond to those triggers. But speech is a very important aspect on that level of truth. The Buddha talks about that many times. And it isn't just the words that come out of our mouth. Although, of course, that is the word speech. It's... um, well known and it is easily um, experienced that speech has behind it all the aspects of the person who is speaking. We often use speech to manipulate. We often use speech to hide behind. If even those that are extremely good at that, and most people aren't very good at it, are found out within the first five minutes. We don't usually say it, but we feel it. So speech must refer to what the heart feels. 
Now, speech, of course, comes from the mind aspect. But if we separate the two, we're never going to be true. So that aspect of truth is not just that we don't lie about mundane matters. That aspect of truth belongs to putting heart and mind together. So if we can speak from the heart, then we have right speech. When we speak strictly from the mind, what we think ought to be said, because at that time it's either appropriate or it may be something that is uh, useful, that doesn't cut much ice. It's not real truth. So again, we see that we have to get in touch with our feelings on all levels. Now, the truth, speaking the truth of what we feel, does not mean that we then say things of a negative nature that we feel about others. We may very well feel that, but that's not the truth. That's only our own viewpoint. And that is something that we have to be able to distinguish. And that's very difficult. Because here we come to an aspect of truth which is on a much (coughs) deeper level. It's the aspect of truth which is the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path, namely right view. And right view can only be accomplished when the me element is taken out of the whole matter that's going on and the truth is referred to an absolute. So we have first a level of truth which is on our level where we have viewpoints. Now when we have that level of viewpoints we have to be extremely careful with our speech. If we, even if we refer to the heart and we feel what we say, we still have to be extremely careful because it's all based on the me view. And as long as it's based on the me view, it can never be absolute truth. So when we are not careful, we come out with things which have uh, the possibility of being hurtful, they have the possibility of being negative, they have the possibility of being totally untrue because they are very personal viewpoints. So all these things need to be taken into consideration so that when we speak about what we feel and have actually heart and mind together, that we are aware of the fact that we are uttering personal views. And when we say that, this is my personal view, and it may not be yours, we've already taken the sting out of it. When we say, look, this is the way it is, well, we're leaving ourselves wide open for argument. And that argumentation is one of the negativities that I mentioned yesterday that the Buddha said was opposed to virtue, disputation, it's called. 
argumentation. But when we start out and saying this is a personal viewpoint and it may not be so, then we have also learned something from our meditation. How many personal viewpoints have arisen in the last three weeks? Uncountable. No way that we could ever count them. And how often have we then found that they don't matter at all? They're meaningless because something else arises a minute later and if we can make it stop, we can actually get concentrated. So if we learn that out of my, our meditation, then when we do have those personal viewpoints, and nobody's immune from that except the Arahant, then we will maybe preface our uh, discussion with this a personal viewpoint. And that, of course, makes things much easier. Now, when we have that understanding, it's also taking the me a little back. It's not quite as big. Now, when our level of truth concerns speech, it is very interesting that we often think that others wouldn't have a clue what's going on with us. We say the right words at the right moment because they appear to be not only appropriate but also logical and they seem to have a kind of an, a meaning at the time which could be favorable for us. Everybody can hear it. We never need to try. We don't have to be particularly intelligent to hear it. All we have to be able to is be in touch with our own feelings. And when we're in touch with our own feelings, we can hear truth and we can hear the made-up ideas. And the made-up ideas are without the heart feeling behind them. So these things are something that is so important with speech that the Buddha talks about it many times. He gives a formula for speech, which I already mentioned in the first week of our course, but I'll re-mention it because it is an important formula and one which is worth remembering. In fact, all the formulas are worth remembering, if you can do it. And it goes like this. If you know anything that can be helpful to another person and it's untrue, don't say it. If you know anything that can be hurtful to another person and it's untrue, don't say it. If you know anything that can be hurtful to another person and it's true, don't say it. If you know anything that can be helpful to another person and it's true, find the right time. Which eliminates <coughs> impulsive and in <coughs> instinctive reactions through speech and makes quite sure that at the time of speaking we have our feelings in the same place as where our mind is. That they're both going together. That there's love and compassion as well as understanding. Without that, our speech is, is usually fragmented. As part of us is in it, but not all of us. And that fragmentation makes 
our relationships with other people extremely superficial. It doesn't have the heart-to-heart connection. And having relationships with other people without the heart-to-heart connection doesn't really pay. It's useless. The only kind of relationship which is worthwhile having with another person is when there is a heart-to-heart connection. And this heart-to-heart connection comes about when we speak from the mind and the heart. Because obviously our speech follows what we're thinking, but it's got to be included in what we're feeling. It's very noticeable when one moves a lot between east and west. Very noticeable. In the west, we all try to speak from what we think is up here. And in the east, there's far more likelihood that people speak from what's here. It would be ideal if we could put the two together and speak from both places. One alone is never sufficient. The, the one alone which we are more used to is the words which are sort of on a level where we are also very often thinking of what is favorable and has a sort of an advantage for us. And that, of course, is strictly with the me content. So obviously it contains not lying, this level of, of speaking. It contains no backbiting, no um, gossiping, and no idle chatter. One of the, the, the antidote, one of the two antidotes common to all our hindrances are noble friends and noble conversations. I've already mentioned that the other night when there was a question about that. Noble conversations are totally different from idle chatter. Idle chatter is that kind of thing where we are strictly from the head. It's very noticeable when people come along and say, how are you doing? They couldn't care less. And you know it and they know it. So why say it? But when somebody comes along and says, how are you doing today? Same words, totally different ambience. No idle chatter anymore. It's an inquiry into your well-being. That's the difference. We can use the same words. So idle chatter is that which uses words sometimes also for entertainment. It's the cheapest entertainment there is. And it's always available. So this is a very important aspect also, and of course in the noble silence, because the mind keeps chattering. Is it idle chatter, or is it useful chatter? Now, if it's useful, it's about the Dhamma. If it's idle, it's about the world. Because there's nothing to be done about the world anyway. I have to wait till Sunday afternoon, then you can do something about it. So these are parts of that aspect of truth. But we have other aspects of truth, and I've already mentioned it in passing. We have the, first of all, the next aspect of truth we should look at would be the aspect of concentration meditation. Now in that aspect of truth, we have actually our own personal experience of a totally different truth 
than the one that is available to our senses. We don't see, nor do we hear, nor do we taste, nor do we touch, nor do we smell any of the meditative experiences. Now, at this point, of course, of course, I'm referring to the meditative absorptions because everything before the meditative absorptions is method. Meditation starts at the meditative absorptions. So that is a kind of truth which is totally different from what we think we know. Now we have this kind of knowledge which is also truthful, which is on a, a worldly level. And we have this kind of knowledge that we make money with and that we learn at universities and technical colleges and wherever we go to learn things. And uh, these things are true on that level that they're being used in. But we can say that that truth refers to, and these are words which were used by a Christian mystic, St. Bonaventura, the eyes of the flesh, that's this eye here, and the eye of reason, that's our logic. So these things are true on their level. What we see with this eye, it's quite true on this level, it's relative. I mean, that's a towel, I'm sure it is, because I can see it, right? Okay, so that's, that's okay, that's a true truth on that level. And a logical conclusion that we take with, that we come to with the mind, that if it's very hot, I'm going to sweat. Well, these are abstract thoughts, but they are true on that level. And they have far more levels, of course. All our abstract thinking has brought about our technological revolution. That's our abstract thinking. And we know all about that. But these are truths that we are concerned with when we have a relationship to the mundane world. There's a totally different truth. And St. Bonaventura called it the eye of contemplation. Well, that's what we've been doing here. We, it's always called contemplation, what we call meditation. It's a, in, the, in that terminology called contemplation. And then we see a totally different truth. We see, for instance, that joy arises within without anything joyful happening to us. We just have to concentrate. Or we see that peacefulness is only possible if we don't want anything. Well, that's news, isn't it, for people who haven't meditated. Or we can become aware of in the infinity of space and consciousness. Well, that's not to be done with the eye of the flesh, nor is it to be done with the eye of reason. I mean, how can anybody reasonably expect to become aware of the infinity of space? There's no way that such a reason can do that. Well, of course, a physical eye can't do that either. And yet it's an absolute truth which arises in anyone who is able to concentrate well enough. And then there's the absolute truth of nothingness. Well, if we would try to market that, it wouldn't bring a lot of uh, income, would it? I mean, it just doesn't work, does it? The truth of nothingness. But yet we know it's true because we experience it. And we know that there's, there's a truth of neither perception nor non-perception that also <coughs> exists. And yet, 
none of the reasonable approaches will ever make it possible. So we really have, on the level of concentration, which is the third part of the Noble Eightfold Path, and it's called right mindfulness, right effort, right concentration, we have a meditative truth which has absolutely no connection to what we can see nor what we can think. In fact, if we were to see anything with our eyes and were to think anything with our minds, we'd never get near it. It's totally apart from that. And this third aspect of the human mind, because obviously it's an aspect of the human mind, is the one that's most fulfilling and rewarding. The other aspects of the human mind are sort of the preliminary steps that we take in order to have eventually a mind that can become aware of something beyond our reasonable approaches. As long as we use logic and reason, we are also limiting ourselves and the whole world limits itself into that logical, reasonable thinking. The lineal thinking can never encompass the whole of it because it goes in one line and this isn't one line. So there is a truth to be found that doesn't compare and does not connect with the kind of truth that we can have when we think or when we see, because it is something which goes beyond that. So this is a concentrative truth that we actually have as our third step in the three parts of the Noble Eightfold Path. The word right concentration is summer samadhi, and summer means right, and samadhi is concentration. Samadhi is obviously not becoming aware of all the things that are going on, but it's something that goes beyond that. So Sama Samadhi, right concentration, needs those two steps that are ahead of it, which is right effort and right mindfulness, in that order. Now, truth as such also has two partners or two supporters, and these two supporters are determination and energy. And all of you who've been sitting here now for more than three weeks will know that you needed determination and you needed mental energy. And whenever one or the other was lacking, nothing happened as far as the concentrative truth was concerned. These two are the supporters. They are the underpinning, so to say, in order to make that kind of truth arise, even the first kind of truth, the ordinary worldly truth, where we speak the truth, where we do not exaggerate, where we do not underrate, where we look at the facts and try to speak them without any manipulation, without any personal gain involved, where we just have a, a kind of mind determination to see things as they really are, that takes a lot of determination and a lot of mental energy because the ordinary mind that doesn't have 
a little more determination and energy than than usual will twist and turn the truth to fit its own preferences. And these own preferences are exactly related to our desires, whatever we want or what we don't want. So we twist and turn and make it fit. We can make anything fit. The mind is a magician. It can pull a rabbit out of any hat. It's perfectly capable. There's a very nice book about that called Magic of the Mind. It's a magician. It's by Venable Nana Ponica. And we twist and turn the truth to fit our preferences. The way we would like the world to fit with, with our wishes. Of course, it will never do that. But we would like it to do that. So determination is necessary to be able to drop that and even see that we're doing it. It's very difficult to see that without a great deal of introspection. And seeing that, that we're doing that, then takes mental energy and determination in order to let go of that and try to see things as they really are. Seeing things as they really are is one of the aspects of the inside path. So if we don't have, if we haven't got insight into all our viewpoints, we will have, of course, not be able to see things as they really are, but we can at least try. And that was one of the things which obviously is going to lead us into the third truth, the third level of truth, I should say. It's not a different truth. It's a third level of truth. And that's the first aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is called right view and right intention. Now, I already talked about right intention yesterday when I was talking about virtue, because right intention is part of virtue and one of the most important parts of it. But right view is the absolute truth. And right view is the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path. But obviously it's also going to be the last one. (laughs) So the Noble Eightfold Path is not just sort of like a ladder where you get to the top. It's not that at all. It's more like a circular movement. You start out with some right view and having gone through all the steps, you wind up with absolute right view. And that then is the highest level of truth. And that's why it's called also the Four Noble Truths. And it goes from being truthful to seeing absolute truth. Now, right view, we've talked about practically nothing else, independent arising. And I have given many different... um, guidelines on how to get at it. And you can see from this explanation, I hope, that these three levels are lower, middle, highest. Now, that doesn't mean that virtue is something low, but it is the foundation. 
not lying as a foundation. And then comes concentration, which is the means, but the final end result is insight, right view. And that right view needs those other two aspects, the the virtue, the morality, the truthfulness, and the concentration in order to arise. It cannot arise without them because it's so utterly opposed to what we see with the eye of the flesh, so what we think with the eye of reason, that it cannot possibly arise until we are able to let go of both, at least temporarily. That does not mean that we lose our common sense. Common sense is something that is absolutely necessary in this world. We don't fly off into the sky with our ideas. We see a different aspect which is all-encompassing. So we need both levels in order to have the foundation for right view. Otherwise, a right view could possibly be an intellectual enterprise. Intelligent people who read a lot can have that intellectual understanding that there's really nobody there. They couldn't possibly feel it, nor could they live it. They are constantly concerned with themselves because they themselves have found that truth. They found it in the book, and it really makes sense. No way of letting go of the me. I know. I have seen it. I understand. So right view is a totally different ambience. Maybe one should also be aware of the fact that everything that goes on with us happens in the mind. Now, mind also includes, of course, emotions. Everything Everything that goes on with us happens in the mind. All our delusion, all our unhappiness, all our misunderstanding, everything that we use in order to limit ourselves, the kind of um, hardness and rigidity, the belief systems, all that goes on in the mind. So then, of course, the determination, the energy, all goes on in the mind. Love and compassion happens in the mind. If we have a flexible mind, one that's able to give. We, of course, have a much wider ability to change our mind. If it's a very rigid mind, if it's stuck on certain aspects, when it always needs the other sense contacts to make any impression, which means we've got to see or hear, taste or touch or smell, When the mind cannot have that expansion but stays rigid in one place, then, of course, we have much less of a possibility to go to the second truth of experiencing the results of concentration. The more flexible, the more um, giving the mind is, the easier it is to expand. 
So then, having done that, and having seen a totally different truth through concentration, our old truth, which we can see with the eye and think with reason, gets shaken. Shaken to the point where it's no longer believable. And then, using the aspects of investigation into ourselves, where we investigate what is it that has made this feeling arise? What is the cause for it? What's the condition for it? So what is happened that this has arisen? And then the reaction to it. How did that happen? And we see ourselves more and more as a reaction, not as an actor, but as a reactor. We will see that, first of all, we don't have to react, and secondly, there's nobody there reacting. It's just a constantly re-arising automatic progression. And these are some of the things that we have talked about at length, so I do not wish to repeat them now, how to get at it that we finally do get right view. Namely, that the whole of the universe is arising and ceasing, including us, and that there is nothing that is solid and nothing that has ever been solid or ever will be. And that there is nothing that can be made permanent or ever has been or ever will be in that mundane level of looking at it. Now, when that right view arises in us, then comes a moment when we are willing and happy to let go of this delusion that we're carrying around because we have also seen that that is the only reason for having any kind of problem. Any kind of problem. It doesn't matter what name we have given the problem. We might have given the problem the name body, health, money, partner, uh, weather, friends, no friends, job, it doesn't matter what name we give it. Any problem at all. We can see with right view that there is no other cause, no other condition except this belief that there's somebody sitting in there that needs to be looked after. And the minute that arises, we're willing to let go of that somebody that's sitting in there that has to be looked after. Because that looking after isn't going to work out anyway. Nobody can make things solid and permanent and static and have them remain that way. There's a constant shift and change. From morning to night, it shifts and changes. And one moment it's like this, and the next moment it's like that. So having seen that comes a moment when, through the concentrative path, through the meditative path, we're able to let go for a moment. And having been able to let go for a moment, we actually experience a moment where nothing happens. And the result of that, which is a a cause in itself, it's a moment which is totally unconditioned. It doesn't have any condition. That's why nothing happens. And it is then the cause 
for having not only relief and release and joy, but a totally different outlook. The whole perspective has shifted. And that perspective has shifted to the point where right view now remains within the mind and is no longer subject to now I see it, now I don't. Or I don't see it at all. Or I know it logically and look at me what all the things I know. Nothing like that. It's right view from the ground up. And that then, we can say, is absolute truth. And that absolute truth, interestingly enough, has several um, aspects. First of all, it's the absolute truth that has been seen by all mystics of all traditions, no matter what they called it. Particularly uh, prominent in the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages. They certainly used the word no-self. And it can be found in their writings wherever we look. So an in Pali means non-self. An is non and atta is self. So that can be found wherever we look. It's exactly that which has been proclaimed by all spiritual masters. Nobody there. All the self-cherishing, that egocentricity, I want it right for myself. Let them do it. Who's them? Nobody knows. Let them be the ones that look after things. Main thing is, I've got it right. I'm going to be looked after. That is then lost. And with that, the worries are lost and the fears are lost. And the expansion takes place of the heart. And the expansion of the heart means that the totality, which until then may have been a nice word, and the unity, which may have been another nice word, are really experienced. And the separation between oneself, myself, and others is no longer felt. Because what actually separates us? A bit of air. It's easily broken through, isn't it? And we all breathe it. The same air. That's all the separation there is. Sometimes a little air and sometimes a little more air if they're in another country, another continent. It's just air. That's all. And yet, it's a lost hope that mankind will ever see that. But if meditators don't feel it, they have meditated in vain. Meditation has to bring that about. Because that's what we're meditating for, for absolute truth. Now, obviously, right view brings that as a side issue with it. It's a natural um, outcome of it. The main thing that right view always means is that one sees oneself as dependent arising, a thing we've been talking about for two weeks, and heard the Buddha's words in, on it. We see ourselves as dependent arising. Now, never did the Buddha say, me is arising, or you is arising, or 
special person is arising. Nothing like that. Just one thing happens from the other, cause and effect. There is mentality and materiality, but nobody there. So right view knows it from the ground up, from the personal experience, and also has a feeling for it. <coughs> Having done it only once, the feeling is um, not solidly embedded, but it's certainly there. In order to have it completely and utterly embedded, one's got to do it four times. Means then Nibbana, non-burning. But at least we have seen the, the right thing, the truth. So the three levels that we're talking about are, first of all, the level where we have virtue, where virtue is something that we wouldn't be without because it decorates us. It's a thing that, we, that really gives us the kind of inner appearance which is beautiful, far more decorative than any kind of clothes one could buy or any kind of cosmetics one could use, or any kind of outer decoration that would be possible or could be bought. It's the most decorative thing one can have, is virtue. The Buddha says at one stage that we wouldn't like to go outside of our houses with dirty clothes on. If we know that we have dirty clothes on, we would go back inside and change before we'd go out. We wouldn't like to go outside with dirt on our faces. We wouldn't like to go outside with uh, uh, mud or, or over our bodies. We would go in and clean up. Virtue is that which is clean and beautiful within. We should never try to go outside without it. So that's that level of truth. And it is possibly self-evident. And it doesn't matter that it's self-evident. And yet, it needs to be practiced. We need to train ourselves in it. We need to have the fear of the slightest fault. We need to know that we are only hurting ourselves one word of untruth, be it ever so small, hurts us, not the person we are talking to. First of all, they probably hear it anyway, which doesn't matter. But it hurts us because we have, at that moment, put some soil on our inner being and soiled it. So that level is the first level of being true. The next level is the concentration of the meditation, the Sama Samadhi, which we have talked about at great lengths, which are the different levels of the jhanas, where we see a totally different aspect of the mind, of the mind as we all have it, but which is no longer personal then. And then from that comes our ability through practice of seeing ourselves in a different light. We need a lot of um, 
preliminary steps for all that, which are all mentioned in the Noble Eightfold Path, and the effort is one of them, right effort. And right effort is also that purification system of the mind states, no unwholesome mind states. And the other one, the right emotions, the purification system for our emotions, all that is right effort. But right effort is also realizing that absolute truth has a brilliance about it which makes the mind clear, sharp, has a feeling of light as opposed to dark, and cannot possibly, once having seen it properly, absolute truth, cannot ever the mind can never revert again to the states of depression, the states of dislike, the states of negativity. When, even when it has only done the first steps, it will recognize those states and immediately arise from them. So absolute truth is that which is brilliance in the mind and brings with it, of course, also bliss. Because the true nature of being, without the me in it, is bliss. But the me in it, and the thinking aspect, and the logic of it, and the rigidity and the hardness of mind, they all bring those aspects into the mind, which are hard, which are separation, which are fear and worry and anxiety. And there's plenty to worry about. There's plenty to be anxious about in the world because we're all definitely going to die. And the people we love are going to die. And the things that we own are going to deteriorate. There's plenty to worry about if we believe that that is truth. As long as we believe it, that's what we've got in the mind. Whatever we believe, that's our state of truth. Whatever we have seen as being untrue, only due to viewpoint, that we can drop. And we drop because hum- humanity believes it. Everybody around us believes all that stuff. Everybody around us worries about all that stuff. Everybody is fearful. Everybody is self-concerned, egocentric. Uh, everybody has all sorts of ideas what they can get a kind of pleasure out of the world. So we are being coerced into it. But the more we meditate, no, I don't really mean that, the longer we meditate, not the more, the longer our training goes on and the longer we really concern ourselves with absolute truth, the easier it becomes to look through, to really penetrate this delusion that is encompassing the humanity and see it for what it is, nothing but a troublemaker, nothing but giving a great deal of dukkha, suffering, and a great deal of feeling a victim, feeling at the short end of the stick, 
a great deal of blaming, judgmentalism, all of that comes only from that delusion. So the longer we practice and the more we concern ourselves with the teachings of the Buddha, and this is one part of his instructions that one should learn the Dhamma, which are the teachings of the Buddha, the more we will see that we don't have to live like that. We can live free, quite free from all that. Freedom is not the ability to travel. Freedom is not the ability to say what we think. Freedom is not the the freedom to vote. Freedom is to be free from all those things which beset us because of our delusion, our belief system. When we can let go of that belief system, then one day we can really be free. That's why Nibbana is also translated as freedom, liberation, whatever you like, it doesn't matter, whatever words we use, but that is real freedom. And that real freedom has a has that kind of um, result which the Buddha has wanted for as many people as would listen and practice the freedom from all dukkha. The freedom from all dukkha which comes from absolute truth. Now the truth part of our understanding this teaching is the first step. We do need to understand it first with with our logical mind. Because if we don't understand it at all, if it doesn't make any sense at all, we wouldn't want to practice. But having understood it with our logical mind, having really seen where all the problems come from, and realizing that it isn't necessary to think in that way, then we have to eventually feel it. And that makes then all the difference. So that's about all the story on the three levels of truth. Now, if you have any questions, this is the time to ask them. Yes. I I have questions again about the four aggregates of the mind, or the five, but um, the the sense, contact, feeling, perception, reaction, mental formation. The, sen- the feeling that comes with the sense contact, that can be either emotion or sensation. Is that correct? It can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Pleasant, un- but, but is that feeling considered to be emotion? No. It is that's, separate, it's a different thing from emotion. Well, you know what an emotion is, don't you? I think I have confusion about... <laughs> I'm sure you know what emotions are. <laughs> See, I know what emotions are. Okay. Dealing with the sense contact, I'm not okay. clear about. Okay. Let's see, you, you hear something. Somebody is, uh, abuses you. Somebody gets really angry at you, right? And uh, starts abusing you, right? Okay. So that's a sense contact. That's hearing. Now, from all that abuse, of course, you get a very unpleasant feeling. Right? And the mind might say, idiot. And then <laughs> you get angry too. 
Yeah. That's a label. <laughs> and then you get angry too. So That's your emotion. So the label is on the sense contact itself? Or is it on the feeling? Or is on it the feeling. On if the it, now, let's say, if the per- of course it's on the feeling, because you see, this other, the same person, the next day, has changed his or her mind and, says, and flatters you and is really nice and says all nice things. You're such a nice person, all the rest of it. So you get a nice feeling. So the mind says, oh, very nice person. <laughs> and all you had was sense contact again, hearing, and this time you got pleasant feeling. And you say, oh, my friend. And then your reaction is, I love him or her. Whereas the day before, you hated him or her. So, the feeling, is that also, can that also be information as to, it's not reliable as information because it shifts all the time. Information as to, like, this is a, say that these are noble friends and I should pursue a relationship with them, the feeling arises. Or but that's your reaction. That's your that's reaction. reaction. That's these the are noble friends. I should pursue a relationship. That's your reaction. Mm-hmm. Because you heard something that made the feeling arise, a good feeling, and then the label was, oh, very clever, and then I'm going to pursue that. That's your reaction. Now, that may be quite a valid reaction. It doesn't mean that all reactions are invalid. But what we need to know is that who is reacting? Mm-hmm. Is the feeling what you inquire into, the feeling that arises with the sense contact? No, you're... you're is the form, mental formation what you're inquiring into? You should have been here all these two weeks. I wish I <laughs> <laughs> you're going to, You have to inquire into the dependarizing. The dependarizing, which starts with the sense contact, mm-hmm. then the feeling is practically simultaneously coming with that, with the sense contact, then comes this labeling, and then comes the reaction. Each one is the cause for the next one. And when you look at this as cause and condition for the next one, and the other next one just being an effect, eventually you see that within those causes and their effects, uh, we are putting a me into it. Mm -hmm. It's our own idea. It's an idea. But it's so deeply ingrained and it's so well supported by another five billion people that it's very difficult to get out of that. That's why it needs length of practice. And one last question about this. It's about the mental formations. Um, Are those the same as the hindrances? Very often, (laughs) very often. (laughs) The mental formations are the same as the karma formations. There's the sankharas in Pali. And because we make karma with our mental formations, they're sometimes translated at ka- as karma formations. And they're very often beset by our five hindrances. But sometimes they're not. We may have a mental formation which says, I love you. Well, that's, if it's with a little less attachment than usual, it's a, it's a very... Uh, um, very wholesome mental reaction and mental formation, you know. So it's not always the hindrances, but they're certainly doing their part in that. That's when they play their games, in, in the mental formation, and yes. And the mental formations are either emotion or thought forms? Yes, okay. that's Thank right. <laughs> okay, what else have we got? Yes. 
if there's nothing to be done for the world, which I think you said. I hope I didn't. We can check the tape. (laughs) (laughs) At this point in time, before Sunday, nobody can do a thing for the world. They're all sitting in here. That's what I said. What is what about? What is the world about? Oh, what is the world about? Craving. Craving. Yes. That takes a bit of doing to get to that, you know. This is sort of the end answer. But you need all the previous answers also, which took us three weeks to get to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm in her condition. I I can only say, well, maybe you like to get the tapes. (laughs) That's all I can suggest. The world is about craving. But you can actually, personally investigate that and see whether it's true. And the way that the craving is described by the Buddha, it's three three parts, craving for existence, craving for non-existence, and craving for sensual pleasure. So obviously we also sometimes let go of that at... Uh, opportune moments for the sensual pleasure and actually try to give something to people. But uh, then, of course, we get back to the other kind again. But the craving to be is our me idea. So that's what the world is all about. And it's a tiny little planet in a huge galaxy. And the Buddha said that he had influence on 10,000 galaxies. And he was a very small Buddha, he said. (laughs) which should all help us to have a little more universal type of thinking which makes life much easier because it expands a bit and we don't need any fantasy for that all we have to do is look up at the night sky we need no fantasies and then you can see something up there (laughs) yes in terms of the number of people affected directly by Buddhism since the Buddha, since um, Gautama, it seems very small by comparison with the number of people in the world. Well, I wouldn't say that. At the moment, uh, the last atlas I looked at had uh, 550 million Buddhists and 600 million Christians. So, I don't know, I mean... (laughs) It's all on the same level. Because that, that also arises and falls away and then disappears until the next Buddha comes and rediscovers it again. Yes. But that by that time, when that falls away, humanity looks different too. It's a long lifetimes. It's not what we see today. But there's also a very nice... Um, prophecy in one of the sub-commentaries <laughs> and it says like this that the um, teaching of the Buddha would last 5,000 years after his death and that in the middle of that 5,000 years there will be 100 years when the teaching would take on much more impetus and it would be propagated much further 
and then when those hundred years are over, it's all going to go downhill again, which it has been doing steadily uh, until these hundred years. Well, at the moment, we're in the 34th year of those hundred years. So one could say with conviction, if we don't make it now, we won't make it. And then we don't know whether we're going to be around. We might miss him. <laughs> no guarantee. That's the thing. Like, what about the other... What did you say? Five billion people who we're in good company with if we, if we sort of miss this. So what? <laughs> well, what about them? <laughs> what would you like to do about them? Well, it seems... I mean, I guess from my pers- okay, personal viewpoint, my background, that it seems very... Um, Other faiths don't seem to teach with the clarity. That is a personal viewpoint. (laughs) 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 They've got exactly the same path. They have the same path. Whether they teach it or not, well... It just doesn't seem as accessible. It hasn't seemed to me as accessible. Well, it hasn't to me either, but I mean, that's a personal viewpoint, isn't it? (laughs) Anything else? Yes. I've heard that people or beings can go to Deva realms and wait it out for the next food to come around. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you'd like to do, Quinkle? No. <laughs> I mean, if you'd like to do that, that would be perfectly normal and natural. It's a it's a very uh, common wish. And uh, why not? Happy journey. (laughs) 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 Uh, But they can wait it out there. Uh, There you can't, uh, it's impossible to say a thing like that because you see, every realm of existence is impermanent. And uh, the length of time that one is in any realm of existence is going to entirely depend upon one's karma. Now, some of us die at uh, 80, 90, 70, 20, one day old, one hour old. Depend on karma. Same with the devas. You can't sit there and say, okay, I'm going to wait. <laughs> no way can, they, can you say that. But it's supposed to be very nice in the deva realms. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. question uh, about bodhisattvas. I had thought that bodhisattvas made a commitment to rebirth until all sentient beings are liberated. And then I thought I heard you say this evening that all humans will never, I'm not sure how you said it, but it seemed like there would be no time when all humans would be liberated. So are bodhisattvas on the wrong path, or what's happening? No. Bodhisattvas are not on the wrong path. The explanation of the bodhisattvas on the wrong path. Can you help me understand that? Well, I don't know. You know, it's a Tibetan idea. Maybe you should ask some Tibetan lama about it. What is your belief about it? I don't have any beliefs. I try to listen to what to to tell what the Buddha said. I don't have any beliefs. A bodhisattva is a person who is looking for enlightenment. Ah. 
That's all. Bodhi means enlightenment. And sattva means being. That's all. A being that is on the way to enlightenment. So if we have any wish for enlightenment, we're all bodhisattvas. <coughs> and also in, in a certain tradition, we take bodhisattva vows, which means that we are striving for enlightenment. So that's all. But that's it. But there's not the additional commitment to other people, to be teachers of other people? Well, not everybody is able to teach, you know. Yes. Some people find it very difficult, huh? <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that's certainly not a commitment. That wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't make be common sense. The Buddha had lots of common sense. Yes. It's all very realistic and pragmatic. So Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva is mentioned by the Buddha. He himself was a Bodhisattva yes. until he became a Buddha. Yes. And then there are the Mahasattvas. These are the great beings. And the great beings are those that are on the verge of enlightenment. And when you're enlightened, you're an arahant. So that's all. Uh-huh. Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Listen to your heart for a moment. Does it speak to you of love, compassion, peacefulness? Or does it have any other topics? If it has anything else, anything that is bothersome. Let it float away like a black cloud in the sky being pushed away by the wind. If your heart doesn't speak at all, put your full attention on it. See if you can hear it. Feel it, know it. Is it warm and responsive, caring? And let that warmth and care fill you from head to toe.
Now anchor that warmth and care and love within you so that it becomes unshakable. And then see yourself moving from person to person, giving that warmth and that love and that care as your present, as your gift to whoever you encounter. First use the people that are present here. And single one out, the one you would most like to give your love and your care to. And present that person with those feelings. Now go to those people who are close to you, your immediate family, and present them with the gift of your loving heart. Let them feel it, let them know it. Then go to the people that whom you meet in your daily life, at home or at work, or wherever you meet people. Go from one to the other. Give them all the gift of the love in your heart for them.
Now go to all your friends. Go from one to the next. Let them all have the gift of your loving heart. Let them feel it, let them know it. Give them the greatest gift that there is. Now think of a difficult person and give that person the same gift, love and care and peace and joy. When the heart contains love, it doesn't stop loving just because someone is difficult. Now feel your heart expanding, growing larger and larger. Filled with more and more love. Allowing people to enter into your heart experiencing the love that is in it. Being happy and joyful with that experience. So first, allow people that you know to come in. And then make it larger yet and let people whom you've only seen come in.
and then make it larger yet and let people whom you can only imagine come in. Make it so large that it can encompass all the people in the whole country. neighboring countries foreign countries make the heart larger and larger so that people can enter and be loved and cared for so large that you can encompass the whole of this planet in your heart with all its trees and meadows mountains and streams oceans creatures and people seen and unseen allow the heart with its love to be large enough to encompass all of it. put your attention back on yourself and feel that marvelous expansion of love and warmth in your heart which goes far beyond the boundaries of yourself and unites you with beings everywhere blurring the outlines of this one person and making you part of the whole. Feel the relief of it, the joy and the ease that comes from that.
male beings respond to each other with a loving heart.